Okay, okay, let me get this straight. Only 194,000 jobs added, but unemployment falls to 4.8? Oh right, it's the labor force participation rate. 5 million jobs still missing since this pandemic began, but employers can't find workers. That's hard to understand. The economy is still wobbly. That puts the Fed in a bind. Taper too early, and the bond market unwinds. Treasury yields are rising. That's tricky for stocks. The market feels vulnerable to economic shocks. Congress punted the debt ceiling out a couple of months, but inflation keeps rising on nearly all fronts. Oil, copper, coffee, and cotton. Higher prices and rising rates are trouble. Or have we forgotten? It's been a while since we've seen this manifest. That's why we look for patterns on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. And hello again to Ameriprise Financial, our sponsor for the Investopedia Express. So good to have you with us. Meeting your financial goals starts with planning. Ameriprise Financial provides personalized, goal-based advice that can help you navigate today while staying on track of your long-term financial goals. Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see how confident you are about the advice you're receiving. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Well, choppity-chop-chop, equity markets around the world are continuing to experience turbulence in October. But while they are noisy, most major markets are kind of just churning in place. Meanwhile, in the U.S. Treasury markets, a wave of selling has brought yields closer to their March highs. Those yields have been rising on short-term bonds, which are especially sensitive to the outlook for rates set by the Federal Reserve. But they've also been on the rise for longer-term bonds. That suggests investors think that the Fed will be able to keep raising rates even after its initial move, and we know that move is not supposed to happen until early 2023. At least, that's what Fed Chair Jerome Powell and the FOMC have been saying for more than a year. Those higher yields continue to put pressure on technology stocks. They are big borrowers, and when yields rise for treasuries, they usually rise for corporate bonds as well. That means higher borrowing costs. Rising yields also make government bonds a little more attractive to investors looking to pare back on risk compared to volatile growth stocks. You know what else keeps rising? Energy prices. They continue to surge to fresh records as renewed fears of shortages are fueling a buying spree. India warned last week that it only had days of coal reserves left, German power plants ran out of fuel, and China started using Australian coal despite an import ban from down under. Oil prices are at their highest level in three years. Coal from central Appalachia is up 35% year-to-date, hitting its highest level since May of 2019. European natural gas futures even jumped as much as 40% last week to a record €162 per megawatt hour. Inside the stock market, 2021 has been the year of the energy stock resurgence. The S&P 500 Energy Sector Index is up more than 49% year-to-date, compared to a 17% rise for the benchmark S&P 500. The S&P 500 Growth Index is up 17.5% so far this year. But with energy sector weighting in the S&P 500 now below 3%, it can experience big moves without moving the broad market hardly at all. Monty Hall would be proud. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD for short, announced a deal last week on a global tax rate after years of negotiations. 
Over 130 nations agreed to a 15% minimum tax rate, which forces companies to pay taxes where they operate, not just where they have their headquarters. That's a big blow to companies like Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, which have shifted a lot of their operations overseas in search of more favorable tax rates to countries like Ireland, where the tax rate is 12.5%. Hungary was the lone holdout on the deal from the European Union. The corporate tax rate in Hungary is just 9%, and companies including Flextronics, GE, and BorgWarner all have significant operations there. As for the U.S., President Biden and Treasury Secretary Yellen have been pushing for a global tax rate, trying to keep U.S. companies from stashing their profits overseas. They'll need to push the agreement through Congress, which could require the Senate to alter existing tax treaties. That needs a two-thirds vote and at least some support for Republicans who have already expressed opposition to any rise in taxes. The deal goes into effect in 2023. Bitcoin is back, and so are prices for other major cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin's price topped 55000 and it is showing more signs of momentum, even as regulators contemplate rules for cryptocurrency trading and investing. But U.S. policymakers say they have no intention of following China's recent moves banning the usage or mining of cryptocurrency. The Federal Reserve has been working on its own plan for digital currencies and is expected to release a research paper on those plans very soon. But there's also more and more chatter about Bitcoin's use as an inflation hedge. That used to be gold's domain, but it seems that no one wants to own those rocks anymore. At least that's what fund flows are telling us. Since the start of the year, more than $10 billion have flowed out of gold ETFs, while more than $20 billion has flowed into Bitcoin funds, according to JP Morgan. Is it the same investors making that swap? Hard to say, but those fund flows into Bitcoin help push its share of the total cryptocurrency market to nearly 45% from a low of 41% in mid-September. Big money owns Bitcoin. There's no denying that anymore, and that means it'll be harder and harder to regulate. Up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's a dog, or more like a dog coin. That's right, the Shiba Inu crypto coin jumped 215% last week. Shiba Inu, named after the dog that inspired Dogecoin, is called a Dogecoin killer by its developers. The coin is essentially worthless, trading at a tiny fraction of a penny. But it was added to crypto trading platforms OKEX and Binance last weekend, and active trading volume jumped to over $8 billion, giving the mystery coin a market cap of over $11 billion. That, my friends, is the wild world more and more people are living in. Let's get set up for a jam-packed week ahead. First up, let's give it up for David Card, Joshua D. Angrist, and Guido Imbens. These three professors have been awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. Card was recognized for his contributions to labor economics, while Angrist and Imbens won their award for their contributions to the analysis of causal relationships. Card is a professor of economics at the University of Berkeley, California. Angrist is a Ford professor of economics at MIT. And Imbens is a professor of economics at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Congratulations. Well, the third quarter earnings season kicks off this week with S&P 500 companies looking to match the 28.3% profit growth projected for the quarter. It would be the fifth quarter in a row of profit growth across the index and the longest streak since 2005. Banks lead the earnings charge this week with BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Bank of America, and Citigroup out of the gate. It's a tale of two cities for banks as trading has cooled down, but deal-making is hot, and rising interest rates are good news for their net interest margins. As rates rise, lending becomes a whole lot more profitable for banks. Investors know this, 
XLF, the financial sector spider ETF, is up 32% this year, nearly doubling the 17% gain in the S&P 500. Keep an eye on shares of Johnson & Johnson and Moderna this week. A panel of FDA advisors will meet to discuss whether to recommend booster shots of their vaccines to those eligible to receive them. The IPO market continues to set records in terms of new issues being brought to the market. Among those notable filers last week, U.S. chipmaker Global Foundries put in its papers expecting to raise over $2 billion. Finance platform NerdWallet also issued its S1 filing to go public sometime this year, as did online education platform Udemy and Rent the Runway. Let's see if public investors are as enthusiastic about these companies as their private backers. Saudi Arabia is about to make some noise again with its first billion-dollar public offering since Saudi Aramco. Here comes ACWA Power International, which is half-owned by the kingdom's sovereign wealth fund. It calls itself a developer, investor, and operator of power generation and desalinated water plants. The IPO will value the company at $10.9 billion, but you'll have to trade it in Riyadh. On the economic docket this week, we'll get a report on job openings and the turnover rate with the JOLT report out on Wednesday. How many Americans are changing jobs or quitting altogether? We'll also get retail sales for the month of September, as well as consumer prices. We know those have been rising, but are they hurting sales yet? We'll find out this week. Before there were internet influencers, before Facebook was Facebook and Twitter was Twitter, before Instagram and TikTok, before viral marketing was even called viral marketing, there was Gary Vaynerchuk, one of the first people to recognize the power of e-commerce, creating niche content to target consumers, and to recognize that the medium and the message are equally important. Gary has shaped internet marketing and the advertising world in immeasurable ways. Gary is the chairman of VaynerX, a modern-day media and communications holding company, the CEO of VaynerMedia, a full-service advertising agency servicing Fortune 100 clients across the company's five locations, and one of the hardest hustlers and empathetic leaders I've ever met. And he's our very special guest on the Investopedia Express this week. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for having me, my friend. It's really good to be here, Caleb. Good to see you. I don't want to spend the valuable time we have going over your journey, but it is fascinating. And if folks want to know more about your path and how you got there, there's a lot of material out there. There's a ton and it's great stuff. But I want to talk about seeing around corners, something you've done your whole career. Can we do that? 100%, my friend. Let's start with NFTs, those non-fungible tokens. Our audience, our readers and listeners are so interested in those. You've been very busy creating and issuing your own NFTs and selling them. Most recently, you sold your collection of, of doodles and sketches for over a million dollars at auction at Christie's. You started an NFT platform with Julian Schnabel called Art Official. What is it, Gary, about NFTs that has you so enthusiastic? What are they telling us about the future, about collectibles, about authenticity? I think people are underestimating what digital ownership means. No different than I think people underestimated what having a social media account meant. You know, I don't think, and you know this, we're both of the age where a human having a social media account was foreign. That was not something people did. And today, you know, most people do, even if they have it anonymously to keep tabs on people or use Twitter to keep up with the news or occasionally check Facebook for, you know, birthdays a shocking amount of society is active on social and even bigger percentages consuming it. And as somebody who was there in 2005, six, seven, people didn't see it that way. They saw it as for kids. They saw it as who cares if you're having a piece of pizza or walking the dog. And I think the exact same thing is happening right now in NFT land. I think people are misunderstanding why everyone's going to want to own something digitally 
you know, you have all these cool things behind you as we're filming this. There's a reason you want those things. Expressing yourself, decorating your home, a memory to something. There's a million different investment scenarios. And I think that people don't understand that NFTs represent many things. But from an investment standpoint, people want to have digital assets and they're going to trade those digital assets. I also think it goes beyond that. I think the reason somebody owns a Rolex versus a regular watch, a pair of Nikes besides a regular joggers, a Mercedes-Benz instead of a Ford is because of status and expressionism. And and then there's the overarching aspect that it is a public, transparent ledger confirmed with no cost association in comparison to leases and mortgages and all the other things. And so to me, this is a foregone conclusion. To me, it's similar to 95 internet life though. Much like we saw on the internet, there was a lot of public stocks that made no sense, that were worth a lot of money. Pets.com becoming the poster child. And I think the same thing's happening in NFT project land. The NFT thing's going to happen. And I want VFriends to be Amazon or at least eBay. And they were there as dollar stocks back when everything crashed. And I think the same thing's happening in NFT land. The macro concept is here in perpetuity. On the micro, I do believe we're in a gold rush moment right now. And there are a lot of people buying NFTs that will not be as valuable as they pay for them. And that's a treacherous thing to navigate through. The macro's right, and there's an Amazon and eBay out there. Oh, by the way, eight out of 10 of them are pets.com. How are you going to figure that out? There's a lot of ways to play it. If you're high risk, high reward, you're buying the individual stuff. If you're a little bit different, you're looking at the whole landscape and deciding where you want to be a participant, selling the shovels and the picks, buying individual projects. For example, I've spent a lot of money on CryptoPunks I feel like it's my most safe investment I own. Really, genuinely. I'm that convinced that that project, the OG project, the one that kind of established the 10,000 images framework, the one that is owned by many important people and collectors is incredibly sound. And I think the bottom floor of that is $400,000 a piece right now. And so, you know, this is how I think about things. There is something to the digital authenticity, especially in a digital world that we all live in where... What is real anymore? What is money? We get that question a lot on Investopedia. And I don't think people mean, what is a dollar bill? I think they mean, what does it conceptually mean, metaphysically mean? In a world where everything's digital, things can be faked, how important is the authenticity, that signature? This is a Gary V original to the value of things looking forward out a decade or so. I mean, it's everything, right? I mean, that's that was the vulnerability of the world we live in today. There was fakes. There's no fakes. In NFT land. It's incredibly powerful. And provenance is understood and who owned it and the transparency matters. You know, Christie's and Sotheby's are respected and accepted, but it's human-based. They can only be so right. It's inconceivable to me that there haven't been fake things sold through the greatest auction houses in the world. There might just be, but you've gone a step further with with what you're doing with NFTs. Each one of these tokens you recently sold with the VFriends collection includes a smart contract with the metadata that you can interact with the buyer with, right? These They can get exclusive access, I'm reading, to an annual business event called VCon for three years. This is more than just buy something that I created because I'm Gary V. Here's my digital signature. It's a one of one. You're creating community with them. Is that where this is headed to? Yeah. I mean, I think in pecking order, Buy this for me, I'm Gary Vaynerchuk, is probably last. 
I know some people will. I know I've earned some reputation and respect, but nowhere close to the economics associated with it. What's happening here is there's two major value propositions. One is the upfront, which is a three-year ticket to a business conference that I'm incredibly excited about. The second one is, so that's correct. And there's a three-year conference. And the first one is in Minnesota on May 19th to the 21st at US Bank Stadium. So real epic kind of business conference, very valuable ticket. If it was done in the real world, no, not NFT, call it three to $5,000 a piece for a ticket over times three years. So there's some perceived value there. I think the interesting part is on top of that is I'm standing up an intellectual property, even though with the big Christie's five of my original drawings. So for over a million, like you said, and obviously a lot of fun headlines like Gary outperforms Warhol and Harden, like, you know, crazy stuff that makes me laugh. On the flip side, the reality is, is that I feel this is more Walt Disney than it is Andy Warhol. I'm trying to build an intellectual property, TV, film, action figures, this and the other thing. And these tokens are the original cells and I can create value creation as I keep adding value to the ticket holders, the token holders, the NFT holders. So it's an economy that you're building as a creator of an NFT project. Right. And we know how how valuable those original cells of Mickey Mouse or Steamboat Willie, as he was originally called, go for. You were the original influence marketer in my mind, and you're still on the all-star team, a perennial all-star, but that has totally exploded with platforms like TikTok and Instagram. What's the natural extension of influence marketing as you see it? I think what a lot of influencers are going to do now is, and we've seen this progression, it went from just building up a following and monetizing offline a book deal, speaking. I lived that back to my original influencer world. Then you started getting into the monetization of the ads. The YouTube ad revenue started becoming quite meaningful. Then you started getting into brand deals. Brands started to compensate influencers. And there are plenty of people who make seven figures a year, being a human being on social and having brands pay them money to endorse them. No different than Mickey Mantle or John Wayne, just an influencer fall. Then you started seeing them influencers starting to build businesses like I did with Empathy Wines. Eight, nine figure exits for influencers who built a company on the back of their audience. And now I think you'll see in NFT land, people build ecosystems, financial vehicles, economies around them. And I think that's where we're going. Let's talk about investing, which is our domain. You've been a pretty savvy investor and you've been an early investor in some very successful public companies. Given what we've seen, Gary, in the past 18 months, millions of new traders and investors joining the market through the Robinhoods, the eToros, the Weebles, or even a classic online broker. How has that game changing now that we have this very engaged retail base? It changes a lot. You've got a lot more casual investors, many of whom view it as a vehicle for community. Many of them who view it as social gaming is what I would use. You know, like people are buying to game the dynamics. We're seeing investing as an identity. We've seen that with entrepreneurship as a decade. Now you have this. Roaring Kitty is somebody we all know. That's right. So I think that a couple things on that. One, there's also a lot of naivete and ideology and lack of education, which can lead to huge vulnerability. So, you know, a lot of the quote unquote kids, they like me and I keep pushing them, like, be thoughtful, get educated, 
but I think it speaks well. I actually think it's probably one of the biggest reasons I'm bullish on NFTs. I still believe that the way NFTs are going to play out is somebody's going to be more excited to show you they're holding an X copy or a CryptoPunk than holding 17 shares of Tesla. But to your question, we're in the age of showing that you hold 17 shares of Tesla is cooler than having 17 shares of Bell Atlantic 40 years ago. And so it's becoming culture. That is a very capitalistic evolution that makes a lot of sense to me in where we are in the lifehood and the life cycle of modern America. Do you think young investors believe that they can expect to build real wealth investing in the stock market? It's been pretty good for a long time for people that have been invested and paid attention and done that work. But do you think today's kids, so to speak, teens and call it teen to 25, think that that is the pathway to wealth? I do think a lot of people believe that. I do believe that there is a lot more under 25-year-olds that think investing, flipping, being an influencer, building a platform is the right path versus going to college and getting a good job. Or even 15 years ago, being an entrepreneur and building a business for a decade. This is a very different reality. And I think, I think the children are actually not wrong. I think the internet, a mature web 2.0 with an emerging web 3.0 is ingredients for incredible opportunity. And when you say 3.0, what are you thinking about? What, what's in your mind as that manifests? Blockchain, decentralized servers, building the entire internet all over again, the blockchains, Ethereum specifically, or Solano or Cardano or any other blockchain that emerges where people can develop on top of it. Let's talk about how you identify investments that you want to make public or private, public companies, private companies, businesses you get into. What's your criteria? What are your basics that you put everything through when you look at that prism? Do I believe in the hypothesis that consumers will like this? And do I believe the human being that's driving it is capable of driving it or adjusting to reality? It's as simple as it gets. And I have a knack for understanding consumers, which already puts me in a very good spot on hypothesis. I also have a very strong understanding of timing. One thing that I've understood now in hindsight, when I look at my success is, oh, I'm good at timing. Like when all my friends are like investing in VR, I understand that VR is going to happen, but I was stronger than them four years ago saying VR is further away than you think. You know, I was paying attention to NFTs from afar before I got loud about it. I just spent a lot of time thinking about timing. Let's talk about VaynerX and VaynerMedia. You've gone way, way beyond advertising. You have talent management. You've got a speakers bureau, a media agency. Where are the cards on your table and why do you believe in some of these key marketplaces? You know, we have an NFT consulting firm in the Bain & McKinsey kind of space for NFTs. We have a production facility that we're about to rebrand, VPro Now, Inner Productions, but we're going to rebrand it. A little scoop there for you. That's coming any day now. I want to build things for myself. I build X from a lens of in perpetuity ownership. And I'm not looking to maximize profit per fiscal year. And I'm definitely not building it for transaction. And so I put my bets on things I want to own. I want to own a publishing company. I want to own an agency capable of marketing anything. I want to own, that's why there's the Sasha Group and VaynerMedia. VaynerMedia for Fortune 500, Sasha Group for Fortune 501 down. Vayner Commerce. I want to be acceleratingly strong in commerce. 
talent is for people, you know, personal brand building. It's things I believe in. So NFTs, I fall in love. Vayner NFT is a standalone business, right? So these are the things that I really spend time on. And, and then regionally, Mexico City, Singapore, London, this is not by accident. You know, I want to create a global communications infrastructure. And you completely have. You are a marketer at heart and by trade. What commercial or campaign in your life influenced you the most as, as you were growing your businesses, as you were growing your ideas? Do you remember a, a commercial, a jingle, an ad, a person? What was it that said, that speaks to me? Many. Where's the beef? Comes to mind immediately. That really spoke to me. It caught my attention. It made me want to go to Wendy's when I only knew McDonald's and Burger King existed. I would say that uh, PC Richards, the... It's Pavlovian. It's a very big thing. If you're in the East Coast, you've heard that, you know what it means. And I was always fascinated that three seconds of a sound can make me think of a brand. The entire Leo Burnett era of character development, Marlboro Man, Keebler Elves, I'm so passionate about that. I'm sure B Friends is affected by that. 1980s cartoons. Transformers, Thundercats, He-Man, Rainbow Bright, Care Bears, Strawberry Shortcake, literally using television as a medium to build up intellectual property. It's remarkable. And that's how I see NFT too. I see NFTs being the place where I build my Simpsons, my Harry Potter. And so those things that I just referenced stand out dramatically. Let's talk about the last year, year and a half. What influenced you the most in the past year? What did you change about the way you operate as a as an executive or as a father, as a person, given the last year that we've been through or so? Before COVID, I started being self-aware of that lack of candor as an executive and a leader. Gary Vee, the person everybody knows on the other side, strength was candor. People loved that I quote unquote shot it straight on stage in meetings. But me on one-on-one in every relationship on and off the field of business, I struggled with deploying critical feedback or negative feedback. I tried to get around it with optimism, oftentimes met with delusion. And over the last three years, I've really chipped away at it. And in my new book that's coming out in November, I called it 12 and a half. It was about these 13 emotional ingredients that I think are essential for business success as a leader or as an employee. And I call it 12 and a half because kind candor is one of them, but I go very vulnerable and say, I'm only at a half on this one. That's the biggest thing I've changed. I think I'm going through a positive journey around candor. You not only preach empathy in your business and you have the wine, but I know for a fact that you practice it as a leader, as a father, and as a friend. When did you come to that realization and how has it made you better? Early. I knew as a child that I was nicer than most people that I was more compassionate. I didn't have the words of empathy. I knew I was more sensitive. I legitimately recall crying or being on the verge of tears when kids would pick on kids who had disabilities or were poor. You know, I grew up in my first several years of America, I grew up in lower middle-class environments. You find yourself in those environments, there's some kids that are even less fortunate than you wearing the same clothes to school. I was always very sensitive. I cried a lot. I had a lot of emotions and feelings, but they were my superpower. And I knew as I got older and older and older, 
it, it became very clear to me how to harness it. And I'm so proud of my compassion and empathy and sympathy and feelings towards others. I love that I get such a sense of happiness by delivering for others. It's a beautiful, lucky, uh, I want to use that word, it's just my DNA. You know, and then even my mother who accentuated it, there's luck in having that mother, right? Like, I'm incredibly grateful for the circumstances that led me to be very passionate about other people's feelings. You have a lot of employees now. You got them all over the world. You got a big operation. So you have to extend that, obviously, through VaynerX, VaynerMedia, and all the different touch points that you have, which I'm sure is challenging as a leader, right? Yeah. I mean, this is how we know each other. You're an incredible sister. Like, you know, it's about surrounding yourself with people that have that moral compass and seeing them for their strengths. One of the great moments in my life, forget about my career, involves your family. Me being able to see that in her and push that agenda and then us go through our relationship graph, you know, because it takes two to tango, her doing the steps she needed to get to where she is and what she means today. So one of the greatest things that I've ever been associated with makes me so happy because it's players, players in a position to succeed. Players in a position to succeed. Who's better than, than Claude Silver? A one of one for sure. A one of one for sure. I love that. And we have learned, both learned a lot from her. And folks know, on this podcast know she's a big hero of mine as well. Let's go out on this, Gary. We're Investopedia. We're built on investing terms, on investing education. What's your favorite investing or finance term and why? Arbitrage. Because it's what comes natural to me. Boy, can I see it. And my great strength is what I see as gray. People are very good at math arbitrage, what I call black and white, but I'm sure everybody listening here, you may have a slight head start, but any mathematical arbitrage is quickly understood by many others and by nature is commoditized. Gray arbitrage is a secret weapon. When I can see who's going to be popular before anybody else, when I can understand what people are going to do before anybody else, it leads to a whole lot of good stuff and has been, when I'm investing in Facebook four years before it goes public, and then when it goes from 45 on its IPO to 19 and everybody's selling and I'm doubling down, that wasn't luck. That's just seeing the arbitrage. Seeing the arbitrage and seeing around corners, something you have done ever since I met you years and years ago. And it's been a real pleasure to know you and, and watch what you've been able to build, but also the person that you've become. Gary Vaynerchuk, thanks so much for joining The Express. So good to have you here. Thanks, Caleb. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Leeway in Boston, Massachusetts. Leeway suggests duration sensitivity, and we like that term given the recent moves in interest rates. Duration sensitivity, also known as interest rate sensitivity, is a measure of how much the price of a fixed income asset will fluctuate as a result of changes in the interest rate environment. Securities that are more sensitive have greater price fluctuations than those with less sensitivity. Since interest rates and fixed income asset prices are inversely correlated, investors need to pay attention to both when evaluating these assets. The longer the maturity of the asset, the more sensitive the asset is to changes in interest rates. Good suggestion, Leeway. We're sending you some seasonally perfect Investopedia socks for your autumn strolls down to the north end for some chowder. And a special thanks to Gary V for joining us this week. And to all of you, of course. And a special thank you to Ameriprise Financial for sponsoring The Express. Ameriprise Financial Advisors provide personalized, goal-based financial advice that can help you get on track now and stay on track for tomorrow. 
Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see if you're getting the financial advice you need. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. We have to let Captain Kirk take us out this week. That's right, Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. William Shatner, the actor who played Kirk for decades on Star Trek on television and in motion pictures, he's going to space this week. He'll be aboard Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin New Shepard spacecraft for its second crewed flight. At 90 years young, Shatner will be the oldest person to fly to space. Here's Shatner as Captain Kirk in an early episode of Star Trek convincing his crew, including the irascible Dr. McCoy, why they should accept the challenge of exploring new universes. Dr. McCoy is right in pointing out the enormous danger potential in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically advanced as this. But I must point out that the possibilities, the potential for knowledge and advancement is equally great. Risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. Risk is our business. The one and only Captain James T. Kirk. Make sure you know your risk, but keep reaching for the stars. And we'll talk to you again a little further on down the line. 